This is the Diabolique webcast, and I'm your host, Stephen Slaughterhead, and that's my real name. Talking with me again is David Kleiler, former film professor at Babson College and artistic director at the Coolidge Corner Theater here in Brookline, Massachusetts. On this episode, we're going to discuss Alfred Hitchcock's 1963 classic, The Birds. The film is included in the 15-disc Blu-ray set, Alfred Hitchcock, The Masterpiece Collection. It was released mm, late last year, September, October, I think, from Universal. We recorded this before seeing The Girl, you know, the HBO movie. And the scenes wherein they recreate the filming of The Birds, and in particular, um, Tippi Hedren being attacked up in the attic, I thought were phenomenal. But I think it's important to tell you we had this conversation long before seeing that film. And uh, had we had the conversation after seeing it, I suppose it would have uh, ignited uh, some different directions in the conversation. But uh, I didn't think The Girl was such a great film. I didn't like the idea that Alfred Hitchcock was being pathologized, is that his um, singular objectives to really make a great movie are somehow involved or parallel to uh, singularly being interested in his leading lady. Leading ladies. I'm not down with that. Now let's get to the conversation. Let's get to the movie. David, hi. How are you? I'm doing okay. Did you get a chance to watch The Birds? Oh, yeah. It holds up nicely. You think so? You don't think so? Well, Hitchcock knew this when he was making the film, that it was going to be dated rather quickly, particularly the, the effects. Or maybe he was mostly talking about the effects. The effects were going to be dated. And they look that way in today's, you know... I think to audiences, they looked that way just a few years after the film came out. It's funny, when I watched it this time, it was no question about it. I said, oh, my God, this, if, of all of Hitchcock's films, this one could be remade in some ways using state-of-the-art technology. Well, you know that Universal announced that they would do that in 2009, and some fans were in kind of an uproar about it. I don't recall the actress or director who was attached, but I believe that was their intent. They were going to remake it, and are willing to. Well, these things never do well in remakes anyway. They missed quite a bit. Yeah. You uh, know there was a sequel, The Birds 2, at Land's End, or Land's End? No, it, I never saw that. It was a TV that. movie, yeah. And mm. uh, Tippi Hedren had a, um, a minor role, more than a cameo, but um, she did not play uh, her character from the original film. And it, and it was roundly panned. I mean, I think the director took an Alan Smithy credit on it. Is that right? In fact, I believe he did, yes. For those who don't know what an Alan Smithy is, it's when somebody doesn't want to uh, have their own name. They're embarrassed by it, so it's directed by Alan Smithy. And uh, those things happen. But there's nothing to be ashamed of in The Birds. I mean, it's, the sound design by Bernard Herrmann is, is, is terrific. And I'm, so, I'm not so enamored with technology, I actually tried to avoid movies that are, are highly digitized. I don't want to see them. And, well, um, David, I'm afraid that I have to tell you that that is absolutely the way things are heading. Uh, I, don't, I don't want to get too far off base here, but if you're planning on avoiding movies that are all digitized, bear in mind that Aeroflex, MovieCam, Panavision are no longer manufacturing 35-millimeter cameras. And, and so basically anything, any of that equipment that you're going to use on 35 is pre-existing. Well, it's gone. we've gotten to the point where there isn't film anymore, so that the joy people have had in just holding a piece of cell celluloid in their hands isn't there. Our mutual friend Andy is, uh, is going to be out of a job because they won't be projectionists anymore. Uh, it is funny because uh, I went to 
a screening at the Brattle Theater uh, last week, and I was so pleased. I knew it was going to be black and white, and I think Rudolf Maté was the cinematographer. And it was just it was just so great because I saw it was a print from the UCLA Film Archive. Oh, great. It was just gorgeous, black and white. Which film is this? Gilda with uh, Rita Hayworth, her mm. you know her big song, uh, Put the Blame on Mame, Boys, her striptease number at the end, and Glenn Ford as her something. And um, it's not that great a movie, but it's steamy as hell. Mm. Uh, but you, the pleasure of just seeing that black and white, nicely projected, 35 millimeter, just was gorgeous. You know, when they premiered The Birds in 1963, I can't, I can't yeah. remember exactly. It came out in November, December of 1963, something like that. They had a 70 millimeter screening in New York, I believe, when they showed it to um, the crew first. But it, but but it, but it was it was a large format screening, and it just everybody was really blown away with it. Some people shocked by the ending or lack thereof, but still very impressed with the film, even though it failed. What's the appropriate For the most ending? Part, I guess I guess one could say it failed. Is it an appropriate ending? Um, I should I should say to listeners quickly that uh, typically what we do in this podcast, in order to fully cover the spectrum of a film, we we discuss the ending. Is what I'm trying to say. You have to. So uh, yeah. So um, if you're not into spoilers, continuing to listen may not be the best option. And with Hitchcock. <laughs> His endings are ambiguous anyway, so there's no particular reason this one should be uh, just like maybe more so than uh, other films. Mm-hmm. And to me, I think, I mean, this is the centerpiece of his trilogy that begins with Psycho, then then concludes with Marnie. Uh, the, Why would you consider that a trilogy? What? Um, oh, he actually, he did it himself. He did it deliberately. In Marnie, the third one of the trilogy, he took the first three letters of Marion Crane's name and the last three letters of uh, Melanie D'Angelo's uh, first name and put the two of them together for Marnie. Hmm. And they all deal, all of them deal with the way people entrap themselves. This is, I think, The Birds to me is, is the closest Hitchcock ever came to Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot in, in concept. And uh, it's like... Uh, it's an extension of the lines in the parlor scene in Psycho. We scratch and claw, but only at the air and all of that, uh, only at each other for all of that. We do not move an mm-hmm. inch. And, of course, the image of Tony Perkins being entrapped, and he's psychologically entrapped by, you know, his possession of his mother in some way, and mm-hmm. he's literally trapped in that room. Uh, here, it's a clear, clear line. The film opens with people looking at birds in cages. It ends with birds looking at people in cages. Just play, that they're all that stuck in that was the little Volkswagen. The birds are looking down, and it is, I think, one of Hitchcock's clearest, least ambiguous statements about uh, his attitude toward life. Well, there were a number of people who were dumbfounded by it, including Evan Hunter, the screenwriter. <laughs> he didn't know it was going to end this way. Oh, he didn't. No, he invent he invented. Oh, that's funny. He had written an entire ending that I guess he said if Hitchcock and Universal actually did go ahead and film this uh, ending. I mean, the film was to go on for another two three minutes. Um, it would have cost him a, a couple of million in, in special effects and everything. And, and the ending is. Of, of course, we, as the film is, you, you know, we see it end with that very famous scene, famous in the sense that it was 
Hitchcock said it was the most difficult single shot he had ever mm-hmm. done. I forget the number of um, uh, effects that go into that one particular shot. But anyway, 32, I think it was, I'm guessing. Uh-huh. Um, the film went on for another couple minutes where uh, they're driving in his um, uh, soft top convertible, I guess. They're driving through town and they see that the birds have attacked the town. Uh, I, I think uh, there, you know, there, there's a, a fella outside his car that's been pecked to death. People are hanging over fences. The birds have attacked various places in the town, and um, the birds finally get it together and start attacking the car. And what he is able to do is he's able to just floor it, and they speed away from the birds, mm-hmm. and the birds fly up away from the car as he's, you know, speeding down the Pacific Highway. And then um, Hitchcock had entertained this other version of the film. Uh, that, that's where I think Evan Hunter's version uh, ends. You yeah. can see you can see some of this on uh, on the on the disc. You can see some of it on on YouTube, even I believe uh, story, the storyboarded version of the ending. But Hitchcock had also uh, put forth the idea that the camera would go back one step further. We assume that the birds control the world, but he had envisioned the Golden Gate Bridge covered by birds. He just went to Golden Gate Bridge. Was he kidding? A few films I don't ago. Know. Yeah, he could have. Well, he loved that. I mean, I love taking taking popular landmarks and doing things with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can see why that would have appealed to his impish sense of humor. Because certainly, I think that's part of the humor. Oh, like you know what he had done to North by Northwest a few years earlier. Yeah, yeah. but I don't think he's playful in in the birds. Um, I mean, to a certain extent, what I mean, there are so many things in talking about his films generally um but he never is very good and he's deliberately facetious in talking about his own films i think only he certainly can't trust say the uh, true foe book you have to read between the lines of that why would you say you couldn't trust it would you think you have an acolyte at the heels uh, and he's playing with he's on the up and up with Truffaut. he's just playing he's just playing with Truffaut. i mean it's a good book it's a great reference book uh, but to a certain extent, the position of Truffaut is just a wide-eyed young filmmaker. Well, if you get at the, the idea of the master, I'm sorry, I interrupted. But he, he Hitchcock we, isn't going to go into Psycho to, to get money for Psycho and say, "I want to make a film about to tell the producers I'm going to make a film about the human condition. I'm going to make a thriller." Uh, he isn't going to to go in for the birds after Psycho was caused such a sensation. He wasn't going in and say, I'm, I've really got things on my mind about you know the human condition again. No, he's not going to do it. Well, if you're saying he's not being on the up and up, it wasn't on the up and up with Truffaut. Right. And, and these audio interviews from Truffaut's interviews appear on a number of uh, mm-hmm. recent um, Hitchcock releases, Spellbound, Notorious, uh, the Criterion version mm-hmm. of uh, Lady Vanishes. Um, if you're saying he's not being on the up and up with him, do you think that uh, was he being? Isn't that kind of condescending to someone who reveres Hitchcock as a master? Yeah, and that and put it this way, a true foe. Yeah, or contemptuous. It, it, it wasn't, no, he wasn't. No, Hitchcock wasn't. He just he's not going to be as serious as in his films. He's not going to be as serious about his work as. Uh, he just wasn't going to be that serious about his work. I mean, he was serious about his work. There's so much good stuff in the Truffaut book. But uh, darkly analytical parts of the thing, he avoids that. It's, there are lots of, lots of ways in which you, you, read, you read these interview books and you say, what's, what are they really saying? 
Uh, it's not that he's being contemptuous. I think he liked Truffaut, and Truffaut went off and went, went uh, his own film that was a tribute to Hitchcock. Well, you know, I haven't Bride read Black. that book. I'd be interested to know what they had discussed concerning the birds. Yeah, I probably should have read that uh, <laughs> again. I've got it floating around my house someplace. You know, it's fascinating that when um, some people from um, uh, Bodega Bay look at the uh, the filming of the of the birds, which they they filmed it yeah. in. Um, I guess uh, three places, Bodega, Bodega Head, Bodega Bay. And they had said to Hitchcock, why didn't you focus on the beautiful landscape, the the, the wonderful nature around Bodega Bay? And, and Hitchcock had intentionally fashioned the birds to be gloomy, devoid of the color. You know, he he um, in the lab, they turn certain scenes down to give it this sort of darker nature. And in this town, uh, it, um, you know, it, it really, it works for, he, he had said that the, the film was a mood piece. So it's created like that okay. you know, from uh, beginning to end. And what I thought was fascinating about it was um, he wanted to uh, find a place that uh, basically just didn't have much, ironically, much of a background. And what, what by that I mean, or by that he meant um, no hills, no trees. I mean, he could if he could film this on just sand, you know, just just so if you know, when you have the structures, uh, there's nothing back there, and you have the whole sky to play with. Because he knew that filming the birds uh, was going to be tough enough, so they 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 wanted something that basically had an open sky, and uh, this town worked for the most part perfectly for him. Although it wasn't, uh, they they did have to build a number of buildings. But when you look at the film, you you can see how. He, he was right about that because there, there really isn't a vista. It's just, it's, it's, it's like the building and then the land behind the building is so low, it's, everything is mostly sky, which is sort of fascinating. Well, that has to be for one of the, his creation of one of the possible ways of interpreting the film. But on the other hand, he just made, it's sort of funny, it, it, I'm sure it hadn't occurred to you that, that, the three films oh, do make a trilogy. To me. But no, what is interesting, of course, the focus, what the people generally say about, especially what, 50 years ago when the film came out, uh, just as Psycho made people not want to go into the shower anymore for a long time. Wow. And uh, people, um, I know my the woman who lived across the street from me when this <laughs> came out, she was already afraid of birds and she couldn't walk down the street after she saw the um, And it just preyed on that. So, on the one hand, the film may or may not be about something else, but uh, what Hitchcock always loved doing was taking something that we take for granted, something yeah. or uh, something ordinary, that, and then transform it into something terrifying. Well, there's this greater idea, this uh, the, the impression that, like, what if the birds really did turn on humanity? If they got together and conspired against us? Like, we couldn't do anything about it. We couldn't. There's too many of you. You couldn't possibly kill them. Yeah. What's interesting, um, the film that just came out last year uses some of that terror, uh, a film called Take Shelter. Oh, I haven't seen it. The, Is that the, um, it's an apocalyptic uh, film. Shannon yep. film? Okay. And uh, there had been talk that he might have gotten nominated for an Oscar. I didn't see it. It was too small a film and not exactly entirely satisfying, but it was really worth seeing. But again, he looks up in the sky and there, these, there are these crows or something like that. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're sort of scary. It reminded me of the birds. I can't think of a film that has reminded me of the birds uh, in the last 50 years uh, that way. Humanity does look kind of small in this film. 
You know, well, that's why there's a lot of sky, the very high, you know, God's eye point of view that Hitchcock uses a couple times. Yeah, and that's really, that's, I think that's important here because I do think in the maze. he's the master of, 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 of meaningful point of view shots. I mean, there's no other filmmaker with the possible exception of, of Polanski that uh, uh, really knows the art of the point of view shot. So when you have these shots that looked like they could be God's eyes. I think one of them there when they were in the, the telephone booth and, you know, things like that. Yeah, yeah. There's that um, famous match shot where yeah. all of the action happens. Well, after, of course, we'll, we'll get to the restaurant scene, which is a fascinating scene. But after that, which the, the scene where Tippi Hedren is in the phone booth, incredible scene. After all the mayhem in the town, you know, when mm-hmm. the, the fella uh, lights the cigarette after the car, uh, after the gas comes down into the, and the all, all the mayhem is basically, it's kind of like put into a box. Once you pull up and get this, you know, godlike eyes view of what's going on down there, you, you see like the birds are over humanity sort of toying with them. Well, actually, I think it's, 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 it's part of the ambiguity of the film. It is it, that. I think he intends those shots. I can't think of of uh, their interior shots where he does. I can topaz and things like that. Where Which is has, hard to do. I mean, he puts the camera know, up in the outdoors, far corner of the building or of a room. Uh, that you have, you know, you can't, you have to raise the question. It's not something you provide the answer. That is there an issue of a point of view shot here? And I think there is. But it's a question of whose point of view is this from? Well, it is fascinating that one when we sort of detect this change, this shift in point of view, it's a weird feeling. You know, it's, 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 it's a perspective shift that I think creates a feeling that Hitchcock is trying to give the audience. You know, it's a weird out. What is the uh, line from, uh, which was it, was it King Lear? As flies are to wanton boys, so are we to the gods. They, they use us for their mirth. Uh, but we get so many shots, overhead shots, of uh, in this film, but I just I just can't think of a Hitchcock film that makes so much use of exterior uh, shots, and that's why I think you know it is a possible interpretation. But mm-hmm. I think we just have to work with possible interpretations, not the interpretation. And it, and it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy for him. It, this The Birds was a challenging film in the sense that I think he said at the time it was absolutely his most challenging film, and he didn't know if he could make it. He didn't believe, he wasn't 100% sure that it was possible that he could make this film. So what he did was, um, he uh, the first guy hired on the film was Robert Boyle, the um, production designer, mm-hmm. who he worked with on uh, Shadow of a Doubt and uh, North by Northwest. And um, since there wasn't any production material, Hitchcock just wanted to know if we could get these birds to do this and if we could do this with the effects. So they started early with... Um, doing effects tests and so Robert Boyle uh, he went and read um, Daphne du Maurier's book and he consulted with uh, Hitchcock about it and, and um, her book the bir- her short story I think it was a short story, short story. it was called The Birds and I think it took place in a, a farm Cornish farm and they had decided that what they needed to do to make this really relevant was to bring it bring it into the present so they, once they decided to do that, Hitchcock basically just took the idea. He didn't, you know, this, oh, isn't, yeah. this isn't a movie about, of the, you know, it's not a, this isn't the short story. It's basically just her idea. And, uh, you know, you bring it into the present and then you, um, 
And then, well, and then his next step was to, you know, try and figure out if he could get these birds to work. So they spent $200,000 on building mechanical birds, which they tested and then they scrapped. And I think inevitably they only used a couple of mechanical birds in the film and, and only in circumstances where they couldn't, they, they had bird trainers, of course. Um, but there were only two instances, I think, when when they used a mechanical bird. One is when the seagull attacks the little girl at the party, and I think the lovebirds at the end were also uh, mechanical. Right? But most of that stuff was um, was scrapped. And and what the, the one thing I believe, if I, if I remember correctly, the one thing that made this film possible was um, this. This was filmed in what sixty two, sixty three, sixty two, and special effects were sort of in their primitive stage. Still, still, it's like effects are always in a primitive stage. But what Star Wars did with traveling mats and filming on blue screens and filming spaceships, they couldn't do in 62, 63. And they had to film birds. And I guess the way it was done then is if you, you, you do a, uh, it was called a sodium vapor process. And you had to line up these shots. And if there was a problem, if you didn't line up the shot correctly, there was something the effects guys called fringing which was sort of this yellow line that appears. And like when you see it, you'll know it's fake. But there was a guy at Disney, Ub Iwerks. Yep. Who was, He's legendary. Um, did I pronounce his name correctly? Yep. yep. He had um, been working on uh, trying to uh, minimize the resolution problem in doing um, these uh, special effects shots, uh, you know, the marrying of two images. What he had done with some of his... Uh, colleagues at Disney was they had developed this prism. They developed a couple, a couple of them, um, and one of them didn't work, but he, one of these prisms, for whatever reason, you know, they, you, you know when you filmed through it, it, it somehow eliminated the grain and made the marrying of two films. You, you, you somehow were able to get an original negative, and you, you could put multiple pieces of film together without without an obvious generation well, loss. John Huston did that with Moby Dick. Did he? Yeah. And it went on uh, with, uh, the film we talked about a while ago was Island of the... And, oh, uh, Island of Lost Souls. Island of Lost Souls, that's yeah. it. Uh, <laughs> but the guy who did that had already done that with the leper scene in the silent Ben-Hur. So they were always playing around with technology. I mean, uh-huh. it's one of the things... I mean, I'm hoping in six years to take my granddaughter to see, I hope the, the Brattle gets 3D equipment and take her to go see you go. For those who don't know, the Brattle Theater is a, is a uh, independent theater in Cambridge that shows, is a repertory theater. Do you, you think that they're actually, how could they, they have a rear screen projection system? I'm joking. Okay. But <laughs> it's a fantasy. I mean, there won't be film shown at the Somerville Theater anymore. I don't know. Hmm. But, you know, I think the great thing about, say, Hugo is that he celebrates the man who was the first, did the first technical wizardry. Uh, and he, Scorsese, basically, as of right now, used state of the art technology for his own film. And, but that won't be state of the art in five or six years. Yeah, there's, there's certain times where, in, you know, two or three years periods where things just jump forward quickly, but it jumps forward so quickly in film. So um, I guess this guy, Ub Ibor, this guy, yeah. anyway, Ub Ibor, he was a friend of Disney and Disney decided to get rid of this, that they, they weren't going to do the sodium vapor process. They were, they were working, uh, you know, trying to figure out how they could uh, marry film together 
with animation and all sorts of, you know, which they did in like Mary Poppins and Bedknobs and Broomsticks. But in 59, after they were able, uh, Ub Iwerks, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, was able able to fine tune this process. And uh, it wasn't in use anymore. Uh, Hitchcock contacted him. They, they, they discussed what Hitchcock wanted to do with the birds. And um, he was able to get Ub Iwerks to get this prism that he had out of storage. And, and this, this little device was, is what made uh, the filming and the compositing of these birds in the movie possible. So it's a little prism that this movie owes its life to. That's right. No, you, you, that's why we compliment each other. Um, I have zero interest in how films get made. Oh, that's uh, because you know, I, I just care that I care that they get made, and I'm the things I'm interested in are when changes happen during the filming process. So changes in the story the director wants to tell mm-hmm. will happen because of what inevitably goes on. Well, then, David, you've got a real challenge here because Hitchcock is the one that. Yeah, Every, he's either lauded or criticized for the fact that by the time they start shooting, it's almost uninteresting to him because he's yeah. mapped it out step by step. Not, not everything, but they did have to change some stuff in the um, when they are in Sus- what's what's uh, Suzanne Pochette? Pochette I forget. Yeah. yeah, her house. She's a teacher in Bodega Bay. When the sparrows attack, they did have to change some things in there. But anyway, with Hitchcock, that's a challenge because he's so everything is yeah. storyboarded. But with the birds, this was a very unpredictable element for him. Things changed because he couldn't get the birds to do what he needed them to do. That's why the uh, you know in this particular case, the making of is relevant. But you know, I've been reading books like Arthur Penn and Howard Hawks and things like that. And you know, these changes there are things that happen in the in the uh, mm-hmm. in the making process, and the birds would have posed the most problems. Also, Hitchcock is not known for making movies that make the, a great use of the out-of-doors unless you're climbing Mount Rushmore or something like that. I mean, those, he only uses the outdoors, the Statue of Liberty, you know, things like that, mm-hmm. um, when it suits is trying to take a, you know, do that kind of uh, trick with film, the British Museum and blackmail, uh, all of that stuff. See, I look at Fritz Lang's Metropolis. As far as I'm concerned, the movie was made yesterday. I don't see it as something that's out of date uh, and quaint because it is out of date. Um, when I first saw Metropolis, as I continue to see Metropolis, uh, I said, oh my God, it's an amazing film. Amazing, not only in terms of the effects that it does have, but it's um, sort of view of humanity and that kind of thing. And I just, I just think it's, uh, it, it's amazing. David, one of the scenes I wanted to talk to you about was the, uh, the restaurant scene. That is really the centerpiece of the movie. Absolutely, it's really the, this is sort of the um, th- like the heart of the film. Well, it's beautifully where where it's structured because by the time we get to it, we're asking the same questions that the people in the film are asking. What's all this about? Mm-hmm. And uh, and we we as members of the audience want answers. Uh, what is all this? And that scene, right, the centerpiece. In many ways, to me, just as. I feel that the parlor scene before the, the, the shower murder in Psycho mm. is key to getting the film. I think this, this, the least exciting scene in some ways is a key to understanding what's going on in the film. So what's your take mm. on it? 
this this fits into the idea of what you said that the birds have put people in people in cages mm-hmm. now if you could imagine just the, that the restaurant is just another cage mm-hmm. this is the cafe that sits on the dock that's across right. the waterway from uh, uh, the Brenner house mm-hmm. it's where uh, Tippy Hedron goes to get the love bird she she goes to this dock to rent a boat to um, you know get the lovebirds over to um, uh, Mitchell Brenner Rod Taylor uh, and we come back to the restaurant because people have taken refuge there because the birds are attacking the town. What's telling about it is we're introduced to a couple of minor characters who serve to put the film in a certain perspective. One of them is the drunk, who's kind of the mm-hmm. um, the guy who's heralding the apocalypse. And then there's his opposite, who is the uh, the older woman, the uh, the orthonologist. Um, she has a terrific monologue in the movie where she basically teaches the main characters about the scenario that they're in. Well, there is four or five different theories about what might be happening there. and Oh, and there's also the, the mother protecting the children who freaks out. Yeah. And, and she's also another... Um, as if this restaurant is is representing opinions from different people yep. that, you know, watching the film. A gathering place. And one of the great things um, is that some people, when they came out of that to get away from that scene, would say, oh, which one do you think it is? And, of course, I think the, the answer to that is none of the above. Uh, that's why the film... You see, it's unsettling not only because of the birds, which we take for granted, showers that we take for granted, uh, but it's unsettling for its lack of resolution. And uh, Then again, represented in the ending. Yeah. But then there's the... Does the restaurant scene? It doesn't provide resolution. No, and that's it then the film goes context. on from there to its lo- its logical conclusion. It's like it is like waiting for Godot. It comes very close to the structure of a pinter play, where there's terror lurking. Uh, it's it's great with the birds because yeah, we do see the attacks of the birds, and they are horrifying. But what is so great with her being up those? It's it's a constant sense of menace uh, that he's able to have there, and it's not only as physical menace from the birds. But then there's the larger menace about not knowing uh, why they're doing this, but how to stop it. And uh, and without real answers, people just go nuts. And don't forget, we've talked about Vertigo in this series. Um, that ending of, of, of Vertigo is not a satisfying ending. It's satisfying, I think, for what Hitchcock's trying to do. It's satisfying in that sense. Mm-hmm. But in terms of what the audience wants, neat resolution... Well, the the film, the, this I think that um, the restaurant scene is also very important in terms of uh, the drama because it's it, it really adds to this slow, like diminishing sense of well being amongst the characters in the film. Yes, it's beautifully structured that way. It sort of comes pretty close to dead center of the film mm-hmm. and uh, model of, 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 of uh, storytelling structure. I was always surprised that Hitchcock worked with Evan Hunter. He's, he's, I just never would have saw, uh, mm-hmm. would have, wouldn't have thought of them as compatible, but whatever. Well, I don't think they were really compatible in that it was like a day-to-day exchange, but he was a really talented screenwriter, and I think that Hitchcock yeah. liked his uh, ability to just build a really strong framework. And I was really surprised that he went without that. You know, when Evan Hunter saw the screening of The Birds for the first time, he was shocked that the ending wasn't there. Shocked. Um, you know the the next step after the uh, uh, the trying to come to terms with this happening scenario inside the restaurant, things move out into the street where the birds are attacking, and then Tippy Hedren, Hedren is caught in the phone booth, which is just fantastically 
edited. Mm-hmm. You know, the way, the way the birds slam into the phone booth. Uh, and, and then the way the, the people in the restaurant are able to see the slow destruction of the city. Um, and, I, and I guess even prior to this, um, you know, there was, there was the attack at the schoolhouse, which is sort of the iconic scene for the film. Mm-hmm. Which uh, really is, um, you know, as as much as we like speed today, we like to, you know, boom, boom, boom. Our audience like to have uh, scenes pay off for them rather quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, what happens at the schoolhouse is a very slow build to the actual, like, payoff of the birds attacking the kids while they're running down the street. The whole scene where Tippi Hedren is um, sitting outside the schoolhouse and then the birds congregate on the trees and... Um, you know, what, what Hitchcock had to do to get that and the bird trainers had to do to get that. There was some editing, you know, they, 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 they wanted the birds all to fly away and attack at the same time, but they couldn't get it precisely. And, uh, they, they did, there, there was some sort of loud sound that got the birds to all leave the jungle gym at the same time, but a few of them flew away early. So what they did was they took like 12 or 17 seconds out of there. There's like a split second edit that kind of you know, just to get things to go at the same time. And then the attack starts and then the kids are running down the street and, uh, um, fantastic scene, really just, uh, iconic in a way. I still think it's a fantastic film, but I think, I think of it more in terms of, uh, my take on Hitchcock's work as a whole, just when you thought, Oh, we're going to go off and see a Hitchcock thriller this weekend. Yeah. Um, as evidenced by mm. his almost documentary, like the wrong man made in 1957 or, or vertigo. I mean, Hitchcock always had more on his mind than simply, you know, a, a, th- a thriller. Yeah, 39 Steps in North by Northwest are great fun films, but even there. You know, I don't know that um, Hitchcock is so systematic about his filmmaking that I've often wondered whether or not people had fun working with him, whether this was drudgery or was it was it a great time? Were you, were they kept you coming just, back. Are you just in Gary the process? Grant, Jimmy you know, Stewart. In the Hitchcock machine? They kept know? coming back. Yeah. Uh, unlike, I mean, surprised somebody like Lars von Trier, people come back. I said, what? Uh, you know, but, mm-hmm. no, but Hitchcock is, I think The Birds is, 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 again, a really, really good problematic thriller. It's still scary, I think. But again, even scarier is the fact, as you pointed out with the restaurant scene, I think it's there with the ending, the lack of resolution is even scarier. But you know, David, I think that what is a little chilling about the film isn't so much anything that we actually see. It's the information. It's the, it's sort of like the possibilities of the things that could happen should the, deber- should the birds decide to do what they want to do. I mean, I think, you know, some of the things that we see on, this, on the screen today, probably really graphic back in 1963, you know, when the farmer, they show the farmer with no eyes in his head. Uh, oh yeah! They show um, uh, Suzanne Plachet dead outside the house, and then the camera pans up to the little girl in the window, frightened. Right before they go into the, um, of course, all that stuff is, uh, you know, to the Brenner house, and then of course there's the uh, the sparrow attack sequence where they got all the birds to come down through the, you know, through the chimney. But I don't know if I could say I was genuinely. It, it doesn't have any like jump scares to me. Well, maybe maybe the scene with the farmer with the eyes not in his head, but. Uh, it's more unsettling. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. I mean, I think that you know the birds in the house and that, that kind of thing. They, you know, the way that Bernard Herrmann does it because there's, there's a suddenness sometimes. Oh, that's another another excellent point there. Yeah, um, that this film features no music. Right. Well, there is a musical score, 
Um, and it was supervised by Bernard Herman. I'm going to read this because I don't even know how to pronounce this as I was researching some information on the film. The soundtrack for the film was created on a machine called a Studio Troutonium keyboard. I don't even know what that is. But I just... Do you think a studio today would let a filmmaker get away without having a soundtrack? And I think, like, the basically the bird the, the bird soundtrack was some sort of early synthesizer with the... Uh, flapping of wings and bird sounds sounds like it could have been yeah you know well perhaps we ought to do uh maybe we haven't hitchcocked ourselves out uh, in our it's our, our second hitchcock film maybe down the line we'll talk about another one uh of his this has been a fun session the birds is good a good choice it has david thanks for talking with me. my pleasure thanks for listening everybody you can visit us online at DiaboliqueMagazine.com. And, of course, don't forget to pick up the latest issue of Diabolique Magazine. Issue 14 is out there. It features my article on the making of Mama, including interviews with director Andy Machete and producer Guillermo del Toro. I'm sure you'll love it. And issue 15 is on the way, so be sure to visit us at DiaboliqueMagazine.com for the latest on that. You can like Diabolique Magazine on Facebook. As a result, we will love you for that. And if you subscribe to the Diabolique webcast on iTunes and leave a review, well, that's equally, if not more, awesome. If you have any comments about the Diabolique webcast, send me an email. I'd love to hear from you. I'm at steve at horrorunlimited.com. Until next time, so long, everyone.